Well, hello everyone. Hello, Sophie. This is episode five of the New Romantics. Who would have thought we'd get to five episodes? Only twice as many, and we'll be at ten. <laughs> Shows you my scientific clout. Um, You've got these numbers down hard. We have. And uh, for those who've just joined us, this is a podcast about. It's a discussion of the intersection between neuroscience and literature, and how these different disciplines tell us different things about communication. We're looking at a scientific paper and a couple of excerpts of contemporary literature, some poetry and a speech from a play. And should we start with the the poem this time? Yes. I'll introduce the poem. It's called The Hearing Cure and it's by a sadly lately deceased poet called Sarah Maguire, who died a few years ago. was a really lovely person, but a very rigorous poet. And she wrote across a wide range of sort of affect and emotion and objective interest. So she was a very, very good plants woman and gardener. She was a great translator and she was extremely interested in Arabic poetry and she introduced several anthologies of that. And uh, she was somewhere between a formalist and an experimenter. So she's sort of person who kind of found her way in short, stripped-down lyrics to things that were very disciplined but not austere. And in the same way, she treats emotional subject matter with a sort of, I don't know how you put it, a feeling objectivity, is what I'd say. It's quite an unusual tone in poetry at the moment, and that's why I chose it, because it does really seem to sit at the crossroads between emotional experience and that kind of wrestling with the emotional in order to pin it down that we might say is the province of a lot of psychology. Mm. And this poem, The Hearing Cure, is about the poet, the persona of the poet, which for argument's sake, let's say, is Sarah, although sometimes that's not clear in poetry, of course, who has a blocked ear and is dropping almond oil into it on a regular basis prior to having it syringed. And this experience of having a sort of wadded ear takes her back to childhood and the experience of ear infection when she was three years old. And thereby it takes her through the channel of associative pathways. The emotion takes her to her mother, who looked after her when she was ill and who we discover, you know, is now elderly, is in a care home and in fact has, by this point, died. There are other poems in this collection that that shows that she's passed on. So it's a very... It it is actually a memory map, Mm. the poem. But it's also a memory map that puts emotions in unusual parts of the body. And this will become important later on in the discussion. We associate this kind of great sense of wellspring of affection, you know, with the heart and, as it were, with the chest. But actually, it doesn't locate there at all. In this, it locates in the ear. And I will just read... A little bit of it, citing fair use in case the the gods of copyright come down on me. And in fact, I'm not going to read from the start because I think the interesting part is the, the memory bit. When I was three, sound turned to stone, then festered. My skull became a labyrinth of pain, my taut throat stuffed with liquid needles... That winter afternoon you pushed my cot into the warm front room and soothed me on your lap. There was the red wool of your jumper unravelling at one wrist, your kind heart marking time. By tea it was dark outside. The football results came on the radio. Scottish League Division 2, Stirling Albion, Cowdenbeath, Montrose, Arbroath, Dunfermline, Heart of Midlothian, Queen of the South a litany that lulled me into sleep. I left you twenty years ago. Since then we've hardly talked, until I found you shrunken, frightened, speechless on a geriatric ward, your legs gone dead from grief. You couldn't stand it when your brother died, and now you cling to me for dear life, your wasted, beautiful hands, slim messengers of fear. Weeks on, you start to tell me things I've never heard before, all that silence frozen in your limbs. But when we got you home, we found they hadn't bathed you for a month because you'd not complain, not ask, not bother anyone. It made me sick. And now I'm ill, bewildered, lonely, 
and I know you'll never make me better anymore. I feed the warmed, sweet almond oil with a dropper into my dead ear and feel the good oil opening the wax. In four days' time, I'll hold the white enamel kidney bowl against my neck while the huge syringe shoots water down the auditory canal. At first it thrums like a far-off city and then the whole live ocean rushes in. I think it's a beautiful evocation of listening attentively to one's past and finding in the physical mechanism a metaphysical and emotional affect that is much more difficult to place physically. There we are, end of speech. (laughs) (laughs) I thought it was amazing. When my son was small and he got an ear infection, I was almost beside myself with just the... The memory of how you do get them as an adult, but it's like an illness as a child. Those seem to really stand out, and I suppose there are practical reasons for this, but the sort of awful, sickening discomfort of an ear infection and the loss of hearing, and that kind of brought straight back at the start of the poem. And then, of course, as you say, going straight back into the being comforted and the the phenomenal sensory memory of that Mm. being taken into the warm front room. It was it was amazing. And I have to say, factually completely accurate about having your hearing restored by having impacted wax removed. It's exactly very, what it's like. Without making a fuss about it, the interesting thing about Sarah's work is that she was very, very particular. Um, she really she wrote slowly and by a process of very, very gradual accretion. So I, I kind of have some sort of sympathy with that because it's sort of the way I work. But um, only I'm not as good a poet and I'm, there's no false modesty there. She was a very, very good poet. And she, she, as it were, sort of built things up from tiled units. And she made sure that all her information was right. Mm. She didn't trust, actually, a memory until she'd really pieced it together with, with stuff in the present. Yeah. She was very reluctant simply to write some sort of lyrical sketch about you know, an experience in the past without having some point of present, a control, if you like, yeah. in the present. Yeah. Because she knew precisely that memory is dynamic and that it, it is all about the present as much as the past. There is a really interesting finding, and forgive me if I've mentioned this before, but it's called childhood amnesia. And what you tend to find is that most people remember very little before the kind of age you start school. And it used to be thought that you couldn't form memories prior to that. Um, and that's why memories kind of kick in at this you know, four-ish, five-ish, because somehow you've got the strategies, the structures for holding the memories in place. And then people started doing studies with very small children. There was a, a case study of a little boy who had a surgery at 18 months old, so pre-verbal. And then you know, nine months or so later, after he was talking, he was asked about the surgery, and he talked a lot about what happened and was accurate in what happened. And then a few years later, he'd forgotten it completely. Mm. Because the thing seems to be, you can form memories prior to this four-ish, five-ish age, but you can't form a stories. You can't fit them into something Very that makes sense. Yeah. So one of the arguments is that's why when you do remember things from being very, very young, A, it's highly likely it's a story someone told you that can become the memory, or it can be a lot more of a... a a sort of intensely sensory experience because actually that's what you can hold on to and often people's first memories are sort of, sort of just impressions of spaces and textures and sounds and intensely high imagery so I think probably my absolutely earliest memory is of a very very bright sunshine on a carpet and that's probably because of this sensory quality and there is no story around it there isn't anything around no, it because that's, that's not going to last it's interesting I mean, and I think you know I, I have a similar thing which is seeing my sort of seeing my sister standing behind some some milk churns on a car journey to Wales I think that there's something here that's that, that's interesting though which is I'm not sure we're not using the idea of story and narrative already in a slightly metaphorical way. In other words, we're using it to describe a sort of depth perception in memory. 
And what we're really saying is that up to a certain point, when you know the sensorium is being filled, is sort of uploading whatever it is that does the whatever bit of hardware we have that mm. uploads our capacity to interpret the world and to perceive. So much is happening that actually there's not much depth to it. It's actually a very wide field of perception in a child. Yeah. And it's all coming at once. And it's there, but it hasn't, it hasn't grown roots. It hasn't grown radicals into sort of the cognitive soil, yeah. if you like. Uh, what we have later in life is we have greater depth of perception because there's more time and something has happened um, neurally, yeah. I think, to, uh, to our ability to, to stratify the information yeah but I don't know that that's what I'm trying to say is that the word story and narrative is a metaphor for that change and I don't know that it's necessarily what story and narrative always is to us as you know cultural creatures I think that stories and narratives don't have to have that depth they don't have to have plot you know Mm. narrative painting is a plane it's rather like a child's thing. And you could make the argument that actually in art, what you're always trying to get back to is that rather more uncomplicated plane of awareness that, that doesn't have encumbrances mm. like roots over complicated associations. You, you're looking for that immediacy. I think you're right. And I think, I think the metaphor is one that the scientists have borrowed from art because what we kind of mean is it's not just the forming of memories but being able to understand those memories and integrate them with your knowledge about the world in which they fit and they make sense so we know the classic first experiments were done by Bartlett who told Cambridge undergraduates who gave them stories from Native American culture and people tended to get things wrong miss bits out and the more you ask them about it over time the more the more they'd make it more and more like a story that they would understand but his point was about the the understanding but mm. if you can't understand it you, it doesn't get in and you will distort what does get in to fit what you do understand so I think scientists are using story or narrative as a metaphor as you exactly say but what we really mean is some sort of integration into how we think the world works and by we just like you and your mind yeah. and it will be yeah. culturally shaped but it will also depend on your experience and you see it you see it time and time again if people kind of get captured by making sense of something, sometimes in a way that you end up with a, like a story of something that happened that bears no relation whatsoever to actually what occurs, but it kind of fits the story that, or the, our stereotypes and our beliefs about the world. I mean, the, the classic example, I'm sorry, I have to, I have a low-level obsession, high-level obsession with Richard Nixon, and um, there's a real, there's a beautiful paper called John Dean's Memory because in the, he was, I think, what, the chief of staff or he was a senior kind of um, legal advisor in the Nixon administration and he was known in the Watergate hearings as the man with the tape recorder memory because he seemed to, he just this incredibly impressive verbatim memory for what went on. And then, of course, it turned out that there actually were tape recorders and finally they got the tape recordings off Nixon. And then you compare the two, what he said happened and what had actually happened. Mm. And it was really interesting because he would generally, as we all do, remember the gist. Yeah. And then the things he got wrong were fascinating. So he dropped out all of Nixon's swearing and he made Nixon sort of polite and friendly um, which generally wasn't. <laughs> and um, he would remember Nixon thanking him for his hard work, which Nixon hadn't done. or you know, So all the kind of stuff you'd want to be true about meeting yeah. the president, he kind of put into the memory, but also got the overall gist right. And, of course, that's all of us all the time and everything. And I think we call it stories because it evolves over time. It doesn't all happen at once. Then we don't have a good metaphor, that a better metaphor that as scientists. But as you say, it's not that's not capturing the the complexity or the meaning that you would mean about, we would use to talk about a narrative or, or consider that to be the whole, whole picture if you were talking about art. Mm. I suppose what he's doing there, he's alluding to, is the fact that when you strip out things like expletives and all the performative aspects of an encounter, when you strip that out in the long term, you're stripping out the meaningless 
mm. or what you perceive to be the meaningless. I think what we might find is that you are also, of course, that's that's a that's a point of view thing, isn't it? That's uh, meaningless to you. Yeah. Uh, you are also stripping out the apparently meaningless because you don't. One of the interesting things about memory is that it's not a sort of. We're not. It's easy to give the impression when you look at the way people construct meaning or narrative to suggest that. This is what they take from this uh, encounter, and it and it is this meaning to them forevermore. Because that's not the case. Actually, what you find is the stuff they've stripped out often comes back, yeah, in another capacity for other reasons. Yeah, it's never deletion. It is, and it's never even. It's not even quite selection. It's to use you know the stratifying thing it's Mm. it's stratifying it's ordering it's all exactly it's organization and i think that's the it's the sort of the skill and the curse of a human brain is we're phenomenally good at classifying and organizing things we don't tend to think of it as being interesting that we name stuff but we name things we organize it and it's a lot of science is you know the, the organization of information and it is not that different from many you know humans you don't i don't think you find any languages where things aren't named it sounds silly until you think about it and you you know you could just be describing stuff by its properties we like to name things we, it's an, like a, the front end of this organisation which is very interesting because it brings us on to the scientific paper in which things explicitly are not named for mm. quite a good reason uh, it's called Bodily Maps of Emotions and tell us all about it Sophie so this is a really lovely study by a, a lab in Finland Lauri Nemenma is the head of the lab. He's someone who, just a, a happy scientific friendship. He was someone who'd worked with a very, very dear friend of mine who I used to work with in Cambridge and who uh, sadly died a few years ago. And those of us who were friends of his and worked with him, this is Andy Calder, we kind of <laughs> started to get together because we we couldn't have him, but, you know, you sort of part of the, you know, it. Was, but they, that's kind of the families that you get in science. And Larry does this very interesting work on emotion and he does work, he's not afraid to ask quite difficult questions and also quite interesting questions. So there's been a long-standing approach to the understanding of emotions that says emotions are kind of mapped out in the body. And this is not something that is new to modern science. I think this idea has rolled around for, you know, the kind of, the humours were placed inside the body. In fact, one of the reasons why people... The ancient Greeks, for example, didn't think the brain had much to do with anything. It's because you don't feel emotions in your brain very much. You feel them in your body. And what Lowry set out to do was to say, OK, where in the body? And what he's, t- he's taking a sort of scientific perspective on this and saying, if we give people maps of the body, just to sh- and we ask them to colour in, where do you feel this emotion? Where do they put it? Is it just in the body or is there something systematic about that? And what he finds is that there is. He basically makes these things what she called heat maps, and they're basically the brighter the colour, the more people agree that that's where they find, they experience that emotion. So, for example, anger is quite quite strongly distributed across the upper body, so basically from the ribcage upwards, and it's showing a sort of left lateralised dominance, maybe, maybe heartish, but also a lot of stuff in the face and the arms, and particularly the hands, so there's like a whole upper body engagement in anger compared to fear, which is sitting primarily in sort of the middle of the thorax and the stomach. Disgust is around the face, the, the mouth. Happiness is really widespread around the chest and the stomach and the head. It's, I think, along with love and pride, which is a song, isn't 80s, it? 80s, yes. neuromantics. That's what my heart longs for now, love and pride. Um, that's, they're the ones that really engage the head. Sadness uh, is, is actually surprisingly not coming out consistently. It's got a little bit of stuff in the chest, a little bit of stuff around the eyes. Not, it's, not, it's not nothing like as hot as anger or happiness. Surprise is presently the eyebrows, which is interesting. Oh, a surprise has an unusual. Well, surprise is often thought to be perhaps not best considered to be a very important emotion. It may be a transitory state into other emotions, and then anxiety, like fear, is again through the chest and stomach and going down into the guts. You Love, see, sorry. This is quite interesting looking at this map because sadness is very close. Um, as you, this isn't in itself surprising to depression. 
Yeah. But it's also to neutrality. In actual fact, the interesting is that sadness is really the absence yes. of um, somatic response. Isn't it is, it? isn't it? It Largely. really is. It is. Abs- uh, that and depression. And that yeah. makes rather a lot of sense. Yeah. It's, in other words, it's the, it's the sort of space that's waiting for some other kind of feeling to, yeah. to recolonise it. I mean, we tend to approach clinical issues uh, like depression from my you know, kind of neuroscience world. People often think of that as like a, you know, it's as a disordered way of thinking, negative emotions are prioritised. But what this seems to suggest, and I have heard other people argue this, is maybe you should think more of sadness and depression as being an absence of positive emotion. There's a, there's a lack. The, the, that stuff is not there. And that's what's one of the things that's awful about it. I think that's very important. And I think that 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 uh, was one of the things I took out of this paper. I have some reservations about this paper. It's extremely interesting. Yeah. Um, but my chief reservation about it is it's. I, th- I think it makes a couple of pretty weighty assumptions yeah and the first assumption is that emotion is this kind of transcendent human capacity to feel that is just always there and can be sort of you know systematized in some way i'm not saying it can't be systematized but the point is it's not transcendent it's actually culturally quite specific uh, and historically sensitive you know if you went back to the 14th century and you asked people who weren't um, the robber baron elite to talk about what made them happy and what they loved, you know, they sort of look at you in complete mystification because actually most of life and most of human existence has been very extreme and hasn't, I submit, allowed for the free play of emotion because there is too much surviving to be done. Yes. And so I, I, I found this assumption in the paper a little bit disconcerting. And it's not just that I don't think you know, people in the 15th, 14th century were, you know, were happy or, or unhappy. It's that I really don't think these concepts would have, would have made very much sense to them. And I, and, and I also think that it's, it, you would have seen a much more neutral picture if you'd done this test as it were then. And I'm not quite saying that emotions are a luxury that we, in our very, very vanishingly small, stable moment in the liberal West, allow ourselves. I'm not really saying that. But I am saying that you have to be wary of suggesting that these things simply exist transcendently. Because I don't know how you'd really substantiate that with any kind of clear look at the history. So there's actually quite, I mean, you've touched on something which is an ongoing and continual debate in the sort of science of emotion world. So there are people who argue that emotions are entirely culturally determined and you find no consistency. Elise and Feldman Barrett has written a book on this. And then there's I mean, people, I don't think that's true. Well, I, I, but I think it's, it's like it, most it's, things. It's, it's well, I think we just got it. There's one thing we love in my area. It's a false bloody dichotomy. Yeah. Like, it's got to be all cultural or it's got to yeah. be all determined. Yeah. It's also true. And if you read Jar- Darwin's book on the expression of emotions in animal and man, and, and importantly, yeah. he talks about expression. Yes, he does. I mean, it's partly I'm slightly yeah. pillaging. Oh, that. no. Yeah. But he's, so he says that he was interested in a, a subset of emotions that he thought would have have some sort of evolutionary benefit because they you could find them in humans you could find them in other animals um, and he he writes about things like anger and disgust and fear and sadness he wrote a lot about laughter and then over the next sort of 150 years in the neurosciences and psychology we picked up on a lot of what he'd written about except for laughter we kind of pretended he hadn't talked about that the interesting thing is that you do seem to find a core set of emotions which basically they've built mm. on here. There were a number of different scientists, but particularly Paul Ekman and his colleague Friesen, they showed from photographs were cross-culturally recognised. So you could go, they went off to Papua New Guinea and sort of wandered around finding groups of people who had never encountered a white European before and asked them, what do these, what do these facial expressions look like? What the story? What you know? Tell a story. Pick the face that would go with it. And what you find is that for a subset of all possible emotions you could experience, 
but you do find some recognition. So there is something about fear, anger, sadness, possibly surprise, happiness and disgust. You find analogies of them in other animals and you find them recognised in a cross-cultural way. The thing that is also interesting and Ackman has written about is that humans also use disgust socially and that gives you contempt. And I suppose what they're saying there is that, you know, we're not talking about what those emotions attach to, which obviously changes. We are talking about their manifestation as emotions. Exactly. So you tie it to the... So just like Darwin said, you're tying it to the expression. Yeah. That if you recognise that expression, um, there are there are some interesting. Sim- there are some points that you find. It's, it's tricky, though, isn't it? It's it's tricky because the expression itself can be can be very misleading. I mean, you might make the case that it's it's particularly misleading in disordered personalities. You know, people who laugh um, habitually at things that are, most people would find very shocking. I mean, the psychopathic sort of route to, uh, or, or you know, just shock you know, actually. Or shock, yeah, yeah. yeah. Nonetheless, I think it is the case that one of the reasons you know we, laughter is tricky is that laughter is very divisive. It's not universal, actually. It doesn't have universal determinants and reference, I think. I think it does. You find very, if you look at the, the, the simplest manifestation of laughter, which is physical play and tickling, it's exactly the same in chimps and humans and gorillas. It's initial appearance. That it look it appears at the same age, then the same. It even make, look sounds the same. Mm. It has strong similarities in rats. Now, one of the things you'll find humans do, and is a hallmark of aspects of human behaviour, is that, that it's never just. You, there's nothing we do that is just that simple ever. So we grow to use it in an extremely complex way, yeah. and a very culturally specific way, and it has who's being laughed at, who's being laughed with, all the, all the, the, the whole of mirrors how we use laughter communicatively and how that can vary around the world. It's extraordinary. It's not at all unusual. It's socially appropriate in some countries to react to extremely bad news with laughter. Like in the office, everyone laughing because someone's received terribly bad news. No, no, I know somebody who does it's, that. She, yes. she says she's got a tick. You know, she can't help it when she hears something dreadful. Well, she in, the, in the Philippines, it's the normal thing to do. Yeah, it, it would be the strange thing to do would be to not join in with yeah, it. Yeah, You know, yeah. so there's so you get this huge variation in in the use, but the roots sit on something that is in common. So the same. I mean, it's clearly a common capacity, but I mean that's not in itself. All that surprising. Well, it is, is it? surprising if you say that it is all culturally determined, which for some reason we end up in this false dichotomy. What you end up with, I suspect, is that we have some predispositions for emotional expressions. So deaf and blind babies will produce emotional expressions in the right context, like laughing when they're tickled, and they've never heard it and they've never seen it. Mm. But we also know from the rat literature that the more you tickle a baby rat, the more it will laugh when it's tickled as an adult. So it can be potentiated. We also know that... Uh, teenage boys at risk of psychopathy do not find laughter as contagious as boys who are not. So it's clearly modified in an important way in development. Can in I direct- ask you what, yeah. what, 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 I'm sorry, interesting, going back to the tickling the rats, what are we calling laughter there? A distinct vocalisation that they make when they're tickled, when they're playing. If you're tickling a rat and you stop, or if it sees you and it knows you normally tickle it, it will make the sound. And... There's also some evidence it will ha- if um, if they get a nice reward or have sex. You also sometimes hear it, but the the strong elicitor is tickling in play, and mm-hmm. it's distinctly different from the sounds they make in distress or other. They're, they're highly social animals, they and they vocalise a lot. So well, the, they're very like us, and certainly genetically as well, aren't they? Social mammals, yeah. you know. It's um, the things that are different are also interesting. So. Tickling is not the only thing that will make a human baby laugh. They'll laugh at peekaboo. And peekaboo does not work on any other animal because mm. pretty much no other animal understands eye gaze. Yeah, eye gaze and so that. And, and the meaning yeah. of that, like the contact doesn't so That's quite interesting, physical. isn't it? Because I mean, n- normally we think of the mirror test as being something that, you know, it's, it's primates and higher primates. But actually, you're suggesting, I think it is also true they've done that with rats, actually, haven't they? Done the sort of mirror recognition thing. And there is an element of crows. Crows, certainly. Corvids. Certainly um, recognise themselves, and they know what eye gaze means as yeah. well. Corvids and dogs understand mm. what it means to be looked at. Mm. So you know there, there dogs, is dogs thick in almost every other respect. But <laughs> they understand what it means yeah. when you look at something. Yeah, they, yeah. They, they they are the only other mammal that does, as far as we can see.
I'm still a little bit, I mean, it's going to push this a bit further, I'm a little bit concerned about this relationship between the observed response and the semantic attribution of the term laughter across species. It, it seems to me, I, I don't... Oh, will this be the first time that William and Sophie disagree? I don't... I, don't I think it was on the cards, it was statistically. <laughs> <laughs> it's highly unlikely we could hear everything. I don't quite buy it, um, although I'm, you know, very, very much persuaded by your, your explanation. But, and I think the reason I don't is that... Um, I, I think the term is slippery, and I'm also aware that particularly with laughter and happiness, there's a lot of... Uh, and I don't think this is just a culturally determined thing, but there's a lot of necessary disguise goes on at the survival level. Shakespeare, uh, there's an interesting damned smiling villain. Does he say that about Iago? If it's not that, and I've got the play wrong, he, there's, there's something similar. That the, the facial expression uh, does not refer to the internal intent at all. And that, therefore, the interesting thing about particularly the relationship to happiness is that it often implies its polar reverse if you have someone with malign intent. Mm. I think this is a bit more profound than just the sort of the uses to which laughter and happiness are put. But yeah, I think it's to do with survival. I think, I think it's to do with keeping your powder dry so that you can be powerful unexpectedly. Laughter is a highly, in, in many human cultures, laughter is a highly acceptable non-verbal emotional expression. You hear more laughter over the course of a day than you hear people screaming or going, Ugh! or, you know, or, or sobbing. <laughs> a few more years of Brexit maybe, but that's, it's, I think, comfortably the most commonly encountered non-verbal vocalisation. By referring to it as a positive emotion, I don't mean that its uses are always positive or that it always indicates a positive state of mind in some way. So people will laugh if they want someone to like them. They will mm. laugh nervously. They will laugh to try and cover up some other reason, other thing that's going on. Yeah. They're trying to cover up being embarrassed, angry. I will go to great lengths to avoid crying. And one of the things I do is I laugh to try and get see that one off. And... Actually, one of the more sinister uses of laughter, the more upsetting uses of laughter, when people are laughing in a situation which we consider to be inappropriate. So there was a court case last year where the two young men who'd killed this woman's son laughed throughout the court case and were joking around. And it fed into the sentencing because it was considered to be such a severe indication that they were not taking any of this seriously, the fact that they would still be laughing and joking together. Or if I once had a work relationship, and I'll choose my words carefully because this did actually happen, I was on the phone to someone who was already not in a very good mood with me, and they heard someone in my office, because there were people in my office that we were talking about some study, we'd all been something that happened associated with the study. One of the people in the office laughed, and she heard the laughter down the phone and went ballistic. Mm because you are laughing at me. And nothing I said mm. can convince this hadn't mm. happened. It's never neutral laughter. I can't... It, it, brains respond very strongly to laughter in compared to, in fact, even other emotional work-like expressions because of its multiple possible meanings. You're always trying to work out what it means. But it does not necessarily mean, and nor do people seem to assume, that its meaning is positive. If you are with people that you know and people you like, people generally laugh a lot because they are you don't laugh randomly around the world. But people will use laughter as an I don't care, as a sign of aggression, as a way of hiding aggression. I people think particularly it's associated with aggression in its negative aspects. I think that's absolutely true. And I think its uh, negative aspects depend on your perspective of it. So I was, I was yeah. laughed at by some teenage boys once and it was horrible. But um, then I think that's quite... that that's, that's, you, you said something there that's very important. It depends upon your, you know, your perspective yeah. and your perception of it. And, and this is what troubles me about this paper, is that it's... You know, there's one, one of the experiments involves telling the um, participants in the participants in the experiment a series of little kind of um, emotional tales uh, or ostensibly emotional tales in order to evoke a response and get, get them to sort of yeah. you know paint on these, these two silhouettes of the human body where they think the emotions come and they are the little stories let's give you an example are they're very careful 
not to include any of the signifier terms, happiness, love, disgust. But they attempt to typify uh, a situation that Mm. would perhaps commonly evoke these things. What are they called? Guided emotional imagery, this is what they're called. Uh, It's a beautiful summer day. You drive to the beach with your friends in a convertible and the music is blasting from the stereo. Happy. You sit by the kitchen table. The dishwasher is turned on, neutral. While visiting the hospital, you see a dying child who can barely keep her eyes open and sad. So those are the little kind of uh, emotional movies or emotional narratives that are that are given to the participants. And the difficulty I have with them is that they're cliches. Uh, yes. So I don't think they're typical. I think they're cliches. And I think that actually what they what they suggest, most of what they suggest, is I wouldn't say culturally determined, but it's associative, mm. and and it and it's thinly associative. I would find sitting down in the kitchen while the dishwasher's on, I would be delighted. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah. so I, I, I that that I felt was a sort of a, a bit of a black hole in the in the setup. It's but. it is really difficult, and I I mean I ran hard into this because we ran a study in Namibia working with the Himba, looking at their recognition of vocal expressions of emotion, and everything's always been done with faces, which are very you know relatively easy to carry around. You can do it with a photograph, and also we wanted to look at more positive emotions as well as negative emotions, and it took years of work. It was really really hard, mm. and one of the things we had to do was to make stimulus presentations that would work with people who with whom you don't share a language it all has to be translated of course we've been through no no kind of the sort of you know enculturation that we go through in the, the UK people showing you books and education and all the things you know the, you could assume nothing in terms of what you could ask people to do and we learnt it was and also you have to be really careful you're not just queuing people into what the answer is by your yeah. movements because it's always a problem but the thing that we had to do was to get to make a doable task we had to come up with scenarios exactly like this but which would work for the himba because none of this would work you know no. and, and we the, the only thing that was in common that I think you find as a universal is that sadness if you say that the death of a child that works for everyone mm. wherever you go that has meaning beyond that we had to, and actually discussed vomit, you know, but, that was, but that was it. I have, to, I have to say again, though, I'm sorry, being t- I seem to be completely <laughs> fixated on the 14th century in this, in this, in this, but there's just because I've, I, I, suddenly this book came to my mind, you know, Barbara Tuckerman's A Distant Mirror, which is a marvellous thing. The, the, the death of a child is a very, very good case in point. Everyone's children died. Yeah. The 14th, they all died. People, there's, we don't have any evidence to suggest that people were heartbroken about these things. Well, I think the evidence that we do have is that it's a cultural universal that it's the saddest thing people can think of. So I suspect that that's probably not something that's varied much over time. And because people aren't writing it down doesn't mean to say it wasn't awful. I mean, I it's think it's awful, been, but, I, but, I, but I... It may not have been unexpected, but I don't think it stops being awful. Yeah. You know, yeah, and, I know, that's, yeah. and I think that's... And I think that's, you know, because that was absolutely true for the Himba, and the Himba are living a Stone Age lifestyle. They have no running water, their children die. Yeah, yeah. So... I'm not saying well, they're just like people in the UK in the 14th century, but they are not. They, they are living what would, one of the last groups you'll find living a, quote, traditional lifestyle. Mm. And that's associated, actually, not necessarily with all the diseases we get in more um, agriculturally dense communities, but not, you know, it's not an easy walk. No. What was interesting was what emotion... We didn't find that everything worked, you know, so we, we, a lot of these positive emotions that Paul Ekman had suggested might be... There's some similar characteristic of being universal. We only find laughter. And just yeah. a hint of relief, a hint of relief, but, like, physical pleasure, not cross-culturally recognised. Celebration, not cross-culturally recognised. You know, there's loads and loads of things that feel, you know... and, and, and that what you're Perhaps saying because is, these are things that become important once certain base needs have been satisfied, well, you know, and certain stabilities. Though they, they, they recognise the term and they have a sign of celebration. They have a very, actually quite a formalised celebration. It's, it's much more formal than ours. It involves a dance. Yeah. Um, but they don't recognise us making celebration sounds and people in the UK don't recognise that. So it's a... But I think that is well, that bears out what I'm saying. I think you you know you have a dance, you have a ritualized celebration when you acknowledge that you know, that actually you've got through a period of drought or you know something good has happened you know in the face of all odds. 
Yeah, um, it's, um, it's but the, there are probably very good reasons why cultures develop their own ones of those. You probably don't want other cultures knowing when you're celebrating. You know, mm. no, no, we're fine. <laughs> you know, yeah. it's. The, I, I don't think, and I'm not defending your critique of this. Sorry, I'm not attacking your critique of this at all. I'm not. But I, I what I will say is that well, no, <laughs> I think the reason why. The, sorry, the, the, another real problem in this literature. So we ha- we tend to fall into this false dichotomy of it's all somehow inherited or it's all cultural and clearly some of it has some relationship to our evolutionary history most of it doesn't so there are you know huge romantic love is almost certainly a culture specific emotion love more generally probably not but romantic well love. yeah it, and as you see it is a false dichotomy because i think it's perfectly fair to say that this is the evolutionary aspect of it that that actually the the behavioral cultural changes over time to a degree perhaps a very small degree but to a degree rewire the primal set of emotion that may be the case in some way you know and also because of the way humans work you never find anything that's simple so if you are a rat or a mouse, you, you fear is a really important emotion. Mice mm. come to grief if they don't experience fear. Now, we feel fear, but we also will take ourselves off into situations in our culture where we enjoy feeling a bit scared. Mm. We'll take ourselves off on roller coasters, we'll do risky activities, but we will actually thrill in that. We'll go to scary movies. You know, we, we don't shy away from a culturally acceptable, non-dangerous thing where we can... Th- be, let ourselves be yeah. terrified, and we, you know, this goes in all possible directions. Disgust, although the kind of core of disgust, again, is very easy. Pretty much around the world, you've got vomit on your hand. People will say that's disgusting. That's that's a really good universal kind of thing. But then beyond that, disgust just runs off in all directions. What people are actually disgusted by is so culture specific. It's incredible. Mm. I mean, mm. most um, marmite, hooray, love marmite, but. It just fills people with horror. You make, you do yeah. what? And then you add what? And then it looks like that. And, yeah. and and actually, every culture has something, or many things like that. Other people, you know, if you've ever been around a durian, you think, God, you're going to eat it? You know, but it's prized and delicious food if you're mm. in, you know, Singapore. So it's... Um, I think disgust has a lot to do with the relationship between the individual and the group, actually. And, uh, yes, can, exactly, control. Know, control, yeah. I think it's, you know, and an acknowledgement of... Uh, it, absolutely to do with... Well, how you communicate or whether you want to communicate some private perception Mm. to group value. And taboos about sexuality are very uh, interesting in that respect. What is the sort of group level taboo about, for example, homosexuality? What is the individual practice and what is the relationship of personal disgust to practice? There are sort of three levels there. And I think that's, you know, there's, there's the individual's perception of the taboo there's the practice, and then there's the group taboo. Yeah. So there's sort of three and stages. It's, it's like the example of fear. Disgust has its origins in a, a revulsion, on a way of being... I, I'm clearly obsessed with uh, Marmite this morning, but I once gave Bovril, a meat-based Marmite-like product, to my guinea pig, and that guinea pig just went... You know, just trying to get it out of its mouth as fast as possible. Our first co-authored um, book will be called Marmite <laughs> in the 14th Century. Yes, exactly. <laughs> Um, it, at its heart is associated with, you know, kind of revolting from contamination. But humans then use it because this is what humans do. We have this phenomenally powerful use of it socially, like in, contemptuous, like we can do it like that. Oh, you know. But also, if you want to mark people out as different or in some way unspeakable, you start to, exactly like you say, you start to engage mechanisms around disgust in terms of the terminology or even just your reaction to it emotionally, which are incredibly effective. And you just see it time and again when a group of people are being discriminated against. They are made disgusting. They are referred to in a disgusting way. There's all the possible panoply of revulsion and contamination and disease is kind of attributed to them. So I think the other problem that we run into in this field is it's really, really easy to test recognition. So everything I did when I was first working in emotion, we, in fact we were working with patients who had selected deficits of different sorts of emotions, 
and it is interesting you can have deficits of a particular emotion if you compare that to like facial recognition you either lose all faces or none you yeah. don't now you can have there was a very beautiful example of a farmer who had had a stroke and he couldn't recognize his friend his the faces of people he knew but he could still recognize his sheep <laughs> <laughs> so um you know so there might be bigger classification differences there sheep faces are preserved but human faces aren't but they all go together when they go within that class and emotions don't seem to work that way certainly all the time so you can have quite selective deficits of emotions so in Huntington's disease it's one of the first symptoms you can pick up is a deficit recognizing yeah. disgust and I was working with patients who had um, amygdala damage and they have problems recognizing fear and anger so you can measure it. How does that relate to their emotional experience? Yeah. What does that mean? How yeah. do you test that? that is, well, that is, that, is the, that is the sort of locus classicus, isn't it? And that gets really tricky. So it, it is easier, and I don't say this in a I, trivial way. I'm not sure I'm saying that because I don't want constantly to be the person sort of, you know, peddling yeah. some anti-reductionist thing. But, it, it's, but a, it's a real problem. But it is a real problem. because And, and of course, that attributional difficulty of, what, you know, what, what do we say people are experiencing because we're looking at the recognition and, you know, what are they actually experiencing is, is as you say, it's fundamental i think that sometimes the language doesn't help i mean if i can advance a sort of slightly literary critical yeah you're um, allowed to been very polite <laughs> well, about, this is about, about communication i i think this is an interesting thing that one of the writers the lead writer says early on both classic and more recent models of emotional processing assume that subjective emotional feelings are triggered by the perception of emotion related bodily states that reflect changes in the skeletomuscular neuroendocrine autonomic nervous systems. Now, one of the difficulties here is that you, you can you can see the writer getting into a bit of porridge of reference and, and actually, I'm afraid, trying to sound rather sure of their ground than they really are. Mm. The, the order is, first of all, it's intuitively difficult, the idea that a subjective emotional feeling is triggered by, you know, something endocrine or hormone. Well, that, that I absolutely buy. But but actually, it's not that easy because at what point do you attribute emotion to the thing? She's saying that these are the perception of emotion-related bodily states. It seems to be a very, very difficult and backwards and forwards way of putting it because you are really saying that there is something already ingrained in the bodily state that is an emotion that allows a subjective feeling to take place. But if the subjective feeling, the emotion, can't take place before the bodily state in which emotion is ingrained, mm. then that is, an in, as scientists, that is an incoherent proposition. Because you're really saying it's, it's already, the emotion is already in the thing that triggers the emotion. It doesn't really quite make sense. So I think what he's getting at, and it, it, it remains a problem in the literature, and we don't have an answer to this, but there, are, there is evidence that different emotions have got different physiological states associated with them. So if you took lots of measures from somebody's body, you'd be able to distinguish a disgusted person from an angry person. The more complex part of this is what order, as you say, is this happening in? And there is some evidence that certainly if you induce some of these physiological changes another way, so you, you, know, you kind of get somebody, get the adrenaline system running, how people react to that will depend on how they interpret it. Mm. I'm angry or I'm excited about something, you know, depending on context. So thinking back to the patients with the amygdala damage, there was a study done in the US with a woman who had amygdala damage like the patients I worked with, and they gave her a carbon dioxide stress test where you raise the levels of carbon dioxide, and people tend to go into panic attacks with that because your body's reaction to the carbon dioxide is one that you will interpret as fear, although you haven't been frightened. And she didn't show this. It's very, very difficult to, just because it can happen first and then you can interpret it. And I think possibly what that could mean is we are not aware of most of the things that our body and our brain are processing most of the time. What you experience is your brain's best guess of what's out there, but there's lots of stuff that's out there and lots of stuff that's happening that actually you don't have any conscious access to. 
So there could be a dissociation between brain changes that then lead to body changes. It's kind of the way it's reaching your experience mm. could always be later. And because experience is always later, that could just be, that's because everything's later. You're picking up on everything. So it doesn't mean to say your body hasn't already reacted and you're, you might have already reacted. It's you know, might already be running before yeah, you know why you're running. Yeah, I mean, I think it is, um, it's good that you, that you acknowledge the difficulty. I mean, actually, mm. what this makes me think of, just as a sort of end note, is, is Beckett's Happy Days, in which Winnie is famously buried in a heap of sand up to her waist to begin with, and her sort of husband is this, you know, strange sort of reptilian creature that just crawls around. And then in the second act, she's buried up to her neck. <laughs> and one of her refrains is another happy day. It has been another happy day. In a sense, what she's part of what is being explored there. The play is often, you know, discussed as a lot of Beckett's work is discussed as, a, as an examination, really, of, of, of a deep depression. Al Alvarez, in his little book on Beckett, is very good on this. But I think what it's actually uncommonly good on Happy Days is it's also about the expectation of something arriving and mm. coming into a bodily state the hope if we like that an emotion will arise yeah it will you know, the the clearly circumstances suggest that things are not remotely happy mm. and that this person is trapped and sort of imprisoned in her life and in her environment but that doesn't actually disqualify her from the possibility of experience of positive emotion either now or in the future. Yeah. There's nothing from the behavioural circumstance that allows us to infer the impossibility of a positive emotion. And certainly... And that's forward thinking rather than retrospecting. We've, we've talked a lot about how yeah, memory essentially yeah. determines, but, yeah. but interesting, the, sort of the, the prospective and the projecting arm of brain function is just as important I think I think so and just I mean one last finding that I found very interesting that I was reading about recently is that one of the most important things to do if you want to feel happy there are a number of things you can sort of hack about your life to feel happier one of the main things is having something to look forward to there's a thing ahead and I think it will be good and, and, for, listen- really matter what it and is. for listeners to this podcast, of course it is. Episode 6. Exactly. Which, exactly. Which will be with you alarmingly soon. Thank you very much. Thank you, everyone. Thank you.